Uh, G.K. Chesterton was a British writer of the early 20th century. Uh, too old for most of you. Actually, too old for me. I've heard the name before, but I'm not a G.K. Chesterton fan. I just read about him this week. Um, he was a novelist, a critic, a poet, a theologian. He was most famous for writing detective stories. Uh, but at the end of his life, he decided to write his autobiography. And in his autobiography, he decided to try to answer this question, what's the most important lesson that I've learned in my life? And he pondered on it a while, and in his autobiography, he answered it this way. He said, the critical factor in life is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. I'll repeat that. He said, the critical thing in life is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Now, I'm not sure I'd make that the top of my list. I think probably my list would start with, how do you answer this question, who is Jesus? And then after that, you know, we have secondary questions. But uh, this one would be up there. And actually, my question and his question, I think, are somewhat connected. If you answer mine in a certain way, I think you'll answer his the right way, too. Some people live as if they're entitled to life's good things and the blessings from other people. And what happens is that attitude usually wears thin, and they end up kind of sentencing themselves to lives of loneliness. Yet an attitude of thankfulness is evidence of our relationship with God. When gratitude is missing from your life, one of two reasons, I think, uh, uh, would explain it. Either, number one, grace has not been received, or number two, grace has not been understood. But if you've received grace from God and you understand what he's done for you, then the appropriate response is thankfulness. And thankfulness not only towards God, but an attitude that, of, of thankfulness that will spill over into your other relationships. We're going to go back and look at another parable today, the one that Andrew just read. And uh, this is a, we've been doing parables for about a month. I thought I'd remind you of, of some of the tools we've used that you can apply really to any parable you read of any length. Um, first of all, look for the surprise. Uh, there's usually one main idea in a parable, and, it, and, and try to avoid the temptation to allegorize the parables by making everything stand for something. There's usually one main point, and that point can often be found in the surprise. And what I mean by the surprise is the audience who was listening to Jesus tell this story, sometimes just one man, sometimes a whole group of people, sometimes a, his disciples, sometimes his uh, hostile group of Pharisees, but the audience would be expecting the story to end differently than it does. And by defying their expectations, Jesus forces them to take a look at something uh, in a new way. And I think if we understand the message that Jesus was delivering to his audience 2,000 years ago, we have a better shot of understanding the message the Holy Spirit would deliver to us today. What's the audience expect? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Who are the people in the story that God looks favorably on, and who are the people in the story that uh, don't come out looking as good as the hearers would have expected. Let's go back to uh, Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A couple things I want to point out about this passage. Reclining was the normal posture, and I used to picture sort of heel-to-toe reclining all the way around the table, but actually um, I, I learned this week that they reclined on, on their left arm did, did the eating with their right hand, but not, not, not sideways to the table, but with their head more in and their feet more out. Not exactly at a 90-degree angle. It's not, like, it's not like they're an... I almost picture a sunburst with the table being in the middle and everybody's legs sticking out from it. 
but it wasn't exactly like that, but it wouldn't have been where they make a fence around the table with their bodies. Um, but because their feet were, their heads weren't a whole, uh, higher than their feet, uh, you can understand why foot washing was such an important thing in this culture. They wear sandals on roads that aren't paved, and then they come to dinner and eat pretty close to the other guy's feet. And so it's a good idea to wash your, your, your hands and your feet before the meal. Notice that Jesus accepted hospitality from sinners. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and also from Pharisees. Sometimes we're tempted to dump one group or the other, like reject the sinners and only hang out with the righteous. Or what I found in some of my conversations with some of my younger friends, um, they don't have any tolerance for the self-righteous jerks, and they're wanting to reach out to the sinners. Well, notice that Jesus accepted invitations from both. Uh, this is, there are two other passages in Luke where Jesus accepted an invitation to eat dinner with the Pharisees, and, and he showed love for them and tried to explain to them. Uh, the parable of the, uh, uh, the, the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son, that we studied a couple weeks ago. Uh, when God the Father, uh, or God as represented by the Father, answered the older son, he didn't give him the big smackdown. He said, everything I have is yours. And so Jesus was gracious to them as well. Um, we should take a look at who the Pharisees are. I think you, sh you surely have heard this name over and over again if you've been in church a long time. And we oftentimes mistakenly think of them as just the bad guys. Uh, the bad guys of the New Testament, because they're always you know, in opposition to Jesus, and he's always busting them for something. But the Pharisees were not the bad guys of their world. They were the most honored, respected men in their society. Remember, this is a society without sports stars, without movie stars, without uh, the paparazzi clicking their cameras at the rich and famous, the beautiful people. And there's no separation of church and state or of religious and social life back then. When a Pharisee walked down the street 2,000 years ago, the other people in Israel looked at them with respect and honor, and with good reason. The Pharisees began their sort of mission as an attempt to return Israel to the righteousness that God had called them to, the holiness that God had called them to back in the Old Testament. The Pharisees were trying to get it right. They were the most prominent Jewish group, and not just Jewish religious group. The most prominent religious group would have been the most prominent Jew, uh, Jewish group. They were preoccupied with purity, with tithing, and with the finer points of the law. None of those are bad things. We're for purity. We're for tithing. We're for the finer points of the law. We, we are, we're all for obedience. And yet they were so preoccupied with those things, the Messiah came and, and walked among them, and they, they, they missed him. But they were, they were trying to get it right. At times they were respectful of Jesus. They invited him. Uh, to their homes to eat. A couple of them converted and became believers. Ultimately, of course, they were hostile to him and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. Jesus criticized them for their greed, for their complacency, and catch this, for their poor leadership. Uh, I think leaders 2,000 years later can heed the words of Jesus to the Pharisees. Uh, whenever I read Pharisee stories, rather than just kicking the Pharisees while they're down, I always ask the question as, as a leader of a small congregation, God, are these words for me? You know, what would you have for me uh, in these words? Let's go back to the story. Verse 57. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Try to picture this scene for a minute. I cannot imagine a more awkward scene than what happened here. I mean, put yourself in, in the place of Jesus. 
Um, imagine going out to dinner after uh, or lunch after church today, a couple families of you sitting together, and a woman who's obviously um, has an unsavory reputation uh, in our day as in theirs, probably you can tell from the way she's dressed, and she comes in and starts kissing your feet. I can't imagine anything more uncomfortable than that. I mean, I guess I could if I thought, but it's, it's, that's up there. That's got to be... That's, I mean, that's got to be one of the most uncomfortable things I can imagine. What if you're a lady at this dinner? And you think, Who, who's that woman kissing his feet? And why is she kissing his feet? And uh, it just strikes me as a, a, a pretty embarrassing situation. Yet Jesus wasn't embarrassed. He even affirmed her for, her for her devotion to him. The woman was not Mary Magdalene, and it was not Mary of Bethany. Uh, they're sometimes confused. Mary Magdalene is introduced in Luke in uh, chap- uh, the chapter before. And so I think one of the medieval popes, claimed that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and somehow connected her with this story. But there's no real evidence for that. She's already been introduced by the, by the gospel writer, Luke. There wouldn't have been any need to tell a story about her without naming her later after she'd already been introduced in the gospel. Um, Mary of Bethany was a respected woman. Uh, she did a similar anointing uh, when it was time for Jesus to be crucified, but it's a different story. Uh, it's not the same lady. The perfume and the weeping indicate that she had you know, sincerely changed heart, uh, humility uh, before God. Uh, one question you might want to uh, ask is, or you might wonder about, how'd she get in? You know, if I invited you over to dinner at my house, there wouldn't be, uh, uh, it wouldn't be likely that somebody would walk in and get access to one of the guests. Well, um, hospitality was different in the ancient Near East than it is today. For one thing, it, it was a, a very highly esteemed value. To be gracious and hospitable to, to visitors was, was very highly honored. Uh, security, of course, is not as tight in their homes as it would be now. And in fact, a Pharisee who was inviting a visiting rabbi to come over for dinner might have even been so proud of it that he would have kind of thrown open the doors and allowed people to see because, hey, look, I'm having the visiting rabbi over. Just another way to get a feather in my cap for being the, the hospitable guy. But clearly, she's not an invited guest. In fact, typically, if you were hosting a, a dinner of some honored dignitary, uh, the women wouldn't be reclining at the table. They might be in the room, more likely to be sitting up rather than reclining there with the men, um, and maybe even not you know, sitting there eating the meal. She cer- certainly was not an invited guest, this woman. Uh, this woman with the sinful reputation was not an invited guest at the Pharisee's meal. She was an intruder. And, of course, kissing the feet shows extreme submission. And one other thing that's different 2,000 years ago than it is today, for her to take her hair down to wipe his feet, much more scandalous then than it is now. You've probably seen movie scenes where a woman will untie her hair and flap it around like in a, 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 a shampoo commercial or something like that in kind of an alluring way. Well, it was much more... It was much more of a symbol 2,000 years ago. It was uh, considered for a shame for a woman to have her head uncovered. You can probably picture this if you think about uh, Middle East societies today. Uh, many Middle East societies still think it's a shame for a woman to have her head uncovered. According to the Talmud, the Jewish law, it was grounds for divorce. If your wife uncovered her hair in public, you know, the husband was within his rights, according to the Talmud, to cut her loose for that because she scandalized the whole family with that action. So th- this lady doesn't care about that. You know, she's 
showing devotion to Jesus' feet. She sees them wet. She dries them with their hair. She has totally humbled herself in order to show her love for Jesus. If you look at the harmony of the Gospels, and what I mean by that, if you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and kind of throw them all together into a chronological biography, there's a story that occurs just before this story, where this woman comes in and interrupts the dinner, where Jesus makes an invitation in Matthew chapter 11. I I know you're familiar with this verse. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is speculation. I don't know that she heard this invitation and responded. But it seems like the kind of invitation she could have responded to is I imagine the lifestyle of a prostitute, someone who traffics in the act of love without really receiving genuine love. It's hard for me to imagine a lonelier existence than, than her life and especially the scorn she would have earned in her society. Um, And this invitation would have been very compelling to her. Her life had been weary and burdened, and yet the invitation of Jesus to come and receive rest would have been very appealing. So maybe she heard this, and maybe this is why she responded to him. Back to the story, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. He'd know that he's a sinner. So the Pharisee thinks, obviously he's not a, a prophet or he'd jump up and wouldn't stand for a woman like this touching him. Actually, earlier in the chapter, there's a debate going on over, sort of a debate, over who this Jesus is. Um, some people have actually proclaimed him to be a prophet. If you uh, look back to verse 16, Jesus did a pretty impressive thing. He, <coughs> he intruded on a funeral procession and... Uh, and raised the dead guy back to life. And picture that. What if you're at a funeral, uh, they're weeping and, and showing sadness, and then all of a sudden the, the, the guy comes back. That's what Jesus did. And the people went nuts. Now, as you can imagine, I mean, what a scene. And here's what they said. They were filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Well, they were right. That's a, they, they, got it, they nailed it right on the head. That's exactly what happened. And yet... Just before this story begins, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees because they still are hostile to him. Here's what Jesus said. John the Baptist came to you, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's, that's me, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So Jesus does this great miracle. The people proclaim him to be a prophet, but the Pharisees, they're, they're still looking for holes. Uh, he's not the Messiah they expect. Remember, the Messiah they expected is kind of like the Messiah we expect in the second coming. They were looking for a military, political Messiah leading the armies of heaven to, to destroy the enemies of God. And that's kind of what we expect with the second coming, isn't it? And they, this, this humble guy walking around dressed like they were, uh, born of you know, hum, humble origins, d- didn't, didn't match up with what they were looking for. But Jesus does a pretty cool prophet trick, I'd say. He reads Simon's thoughts. Remember, Simon doesn't say out loud, hey, how come he doesn't know who she is? He's thinking these things, and Jesus answers the thoughts that Simon's having. Simon's problem is he's blind. He doesn't see the woman clearly. Rather than seeing a repent, uh, someone coming in repentance, 
He just sees a reputation. He doesn't see Jesus clearly. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. And more importantly, I think, he doesn't see himself clearly. He thinks of himself more highly than he ought to, which is a serious problem. When I, when I was a kid, I played football, and we had a coach who's, uh, whose specialty was verbal abuse. And uh, he used to say to us, I wish I could buy you for what you're worth and sell you for what you think you're worth. And I remember, you know, that was a long time ago, but I still remember that because like, I thought it was a pretty clever insult uh, for, for, him, for him especially. His, his insults usually weren't so well thought out. Um, but it's, it's sad when you, when you think more highly of yourself than, than what reality will, will support. Back in the 80s, I, uh, there was a song on college radio. I can't remember the name of the group, but I, I Googled the lyrics this morning. They're pretty funny, and you might, you might want to check it out. The song title kind of says it all. Jesus loves me, but he can't stand you. And uh, that's kind of the attitude this Pharisee had. God loves me because I'm doing it right. I'm committed to purity and praying right and giving my money right and all that stuff. But her, she's got no room at this table. Jesus is going to answer Simon by telling him a story. And Simon's going to be shocked to hear himself compared with her. And he's going to be even more shocked to find that he's compared with her and comes out behind in the comparison. Um, I'm going to interrupt the parable now with a two-for-one sale. Uh, this isn't the only time Jesus compared Pharisees to sinners, and the sinners came out ahead. Uh, let's take a look at another parable. This is uh, 11 chapters ahead, farther along, in Luke chapter 18. Notice the audience of this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. What, an, what a description of the audience. They were confident of their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else. Does that apply to Simon? The Pharisee? That sure does. Does it apply to people sitting in our chairs or our pews at churches today? Don't raise your hands, but I think it might. Uh, sometimes it does. Um, uh, surely if we look at our, our churches across the country, we've got, a, we've got a lot of that. Here's the story he told. Two men went up to, a temp, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I think, excuse me, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Good things. Fasting's good. I think you might be hungry, but it's a good spiritual discipline, and uh, I'm for it now just like they were for it then. Giving money, giving a tenth of their money, uh, I think that's an appropriate thing to do, and uh, those are good things. What, what did the guy do that was wrong? He looked down on the other guy and said, I'm better than him. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, again, I think it's hard for us to grasp the meaning of this parable, because you're used to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys. But they did not think of the Pharisees as the bad guys 2,000 years ago. They were the good guys, the best guys. And the tax collectors, I think 2,000 years later, it's hard for us to get how evil they were. You know, we think of tax collectors as government drones with their hands in our pocket, maybe too concerned with, with the paperwork. And, and if they work really hard, we have to pay more money. Well, we might not like that, but tax collectors in Jesus' day were evil men. 
And I think it's hard for us to grasp that. They were, they were turncoats. They were Roman sympathizers who oppressed their people for their own gain. Um, I, I try to think of a comparison of people who didn't like the tax collectors and people who looked down on them because they were evil 2,000 years ago were right. Who is it that we feel scorn for and don't feel guilty about our scorn? And, and the, the example I, that came to my mind would be pedophiles. Nobody feels guilty about hating pedophiles. They're evil. And yet, would you be shocked if Jesus came to our leadership meeting at church and said, you know, this pedophile is closer to heaven than you are. Now, how can that be? Because the pedophile knows he's bad. The tax collector know, knew he was bad. The, the, the woman, she knew she, was, she knew she was bad in desperate need of a savior. How can that person be closer to heaven than, than you or me? If we think we've earned God's grace through our good behavior, then our confusion has put us farther back in the line. Where are that cloud of denial? If, if we think, well, I've just got this little debt to pay, but this bad lady over here, she's got a serious debt to pay. I'm glad I'm not like that. That self-righteousness, that smug self-satisfaction will hinder our acceptance of God's grace. It will hinder our, our ability to show gratitude. Let's go back to Simon. So Jesus reads his thoughts and answers him with the parable. But notice before he, answers, before he tells the story, he asks permission. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. I think that's pretty cool, kind of a little lesson within a lesson, that Jesus waited for permission to speak or waited till he got Simon's attention before he told him the story. Wanted to make sure he was listening. Verse 41, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither one had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 500 denarii, remember a denarii is about a day's wages for a laborer. So 500 denarii is about a little more than a year and a half pay. A, a significant, you know, think about your pay, multiply it by almost two, and think, you know, that's a pretty serious debt. The other guy, it's not a small debt, but, but a tenth as much. It's about six, six, seven weeks pay. And so both of them have debts they can't pay. This word uh, canceled the debts, the Hebrew or the, the, the Aramaic word literally would be graciously forgave. But they're both spiritually bankrupt. The subject of this parable isn't the amount of sin, it's the awareness of sin. And the problem for the Pharisee is he made the mistake of thinking because his sin account was less than her sin account, that he was less in need of a savior than she was. That's his confusion. Verse 43, Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Notice he's kind of reluctant to answer, but uh, he can see which way the wind's blowing. It's going to be blowing against him, right? <coughs> You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then notice this, this has happened, this conversation between Jesus and Simon without Jesus acknowledging the woman. Can, can you picture that? You've you, you got a woman... Touching your feet. I mean, I can't imagine really any, even people I know and love don't touch my feet. Um, but imagine this woman he's just met is touching his feet, kissing him, crying over him, rubbing, d d d drying his feet with her tears. And all the time she's doing this, he's having a conversation with the Pharisee. And then he turns to her and says, 
she then turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. It's a very awkward scene, but Jesus isn't embarrassed by it. Rather, he affirms her for doing it. Um, now, he's, does Simon deserve to get busted for all these things? He should have washed his feet. You have a guest over for dinner 2,000 years ago. you got to make sure their feet get washed. The kiss, I think that was optional in that day, but very common to give. You've seen the, 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 the scene in movies where the gentlemen will kiss each other on, on the opposite cheeks or, or two kisses on the cheek. Just a friendly greeting back then. Anointing him with oil, again, optional, but a very kind and generous thing to do, and yet she anoints him with perfume. Verse 46, you do not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Notice that Jesus isn't confused about who this is. Her many sins have been forgiven. He knows who he's talking about. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, these are his first words to her, your sins are forgiven. John Owen says this, he who has slight thoughts of sin never has great thoughts of God. And I'd personalize that. If you have slight thoughts of your own sin, then it's going to make it hard for you to have great thoughts of God. Remember the, uh, back when we were studying Romans, we, we, I quoted Tim Keller a lot. The gospel according to Tim Keller, I would, uh, I would paraphrase it this way, we are each of us more wicked down deep than we dare to admit. But also the flip side of that is more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope for. You know, legalistic churches emphasize how evil we are without the grace of God. And then permissive liberal churches on the other side emphasize the grace of God and minimize the cost of sin. Jesus died for that sin. It costs. And yet you are more forgiven and accepted than you, than you dared to hope for. Let's finish the story. Verse 49. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This question has come up before. Um, Back in Luke 5, Jesus announced that he was forgiven someone's sins, and they challenged him on it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they, when he says, I'm going to forgive your sins, they say, You can't do that. Well, yes, you can. It's not bragging if you can do it, right? It's not blasphemy to do what God can do if you're God. And, that's, and so that's why Jesus keeps doing it. And then notice what he says to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the word peace here doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean the state of being when we're not at war. It means reconciliation with God. It's what Paul was talking about in Romans when he said, Therefore, we've been justified through faith. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what saved this woman? Was it her tears? No, they showed her remorse, but remorse alone won't save you. We have, a lot of us have lots of things to be sorry for, and sometimes we're sorry. But that won't save you. It surely wasn't her gift. We don't buy our way or earn our way into heaven. It was her faith. Now, remember what Martin Luther said, we read last week? We're justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith is displayed in our actions. Galatians 5, 6 says it this way. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what's the point of this? Gratitude to Jesus is a natural, appropriate response to his forgiveness. If we understand the point of his story, we'll learn there are no little sinners, there's no little forgiveness, 
there should be no little love and no little gratitude. How did she know she was forgiven? It was easy for her. Jesus told her. How do you know you're forgiven? I'd like to finish the service by reading several scriptures describing your forgiveness. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, there's probably a slide up there showing the different references. I'd like to, to finish the service a little differently than usual. Um, most of the time, um, I feel honored by the academic nature of, uh, of our services. I, we have several note takers in the room who are eager. I'd encourage the note takers to chill for this part. Um, we'll, this will be on the website. We'll actually put it back up after the service if you'd like to. Um, what I would encourage you to do is as I read these verses to you, I would encourage you to uh, meditate on God's forgiveness. Meditate on your own gratitude. If, if possible, form a mental picture of yourself breaking open the perfume and pouring it on Jesus' feet. I think this might be easier with your eyes closed. Uh, I don't insist, but as I read them, you can just listen to me read them, and then uh, we'll, we'll follow up right after with some worship. I'm going to read a few passages describing the Lord's forgiveness of you. How do you know you're forgiven? Listen and see. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Isaiah 55.6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Acts 13.38 says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Romans 4, 7, and 8 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And finally, Hebrews 8, 12 says this, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Lord, help us to... Uh, to understand how much we are in need of your, your saving grace. Lord, we bring the sacrifice of praise. Amen. As we worship, I'd invite you to stand.